Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Muscle Intelligence Podcast, and I am your host, Ben Bukulski, sitting here with my great friend... Danny Vega. And? Benjamin. What? <laughs> Who is it? Benjamin. Benjamin, my angel. And today we're going to interview Jordan Joy. I don't think he's got his PhD yet, but he's pretty damn bright. I'm just, And we're going to talk about... Building muscle, all types of uh, getting deep into... Keto, building muscle, and deeper than just saying, hey, cut your carbs, you know, all these conversations around um, how to maximize performance and actually do it in a way that you don't have to completely change the way you train all the time, um, which I think Jordan can speak to very intelligently. Yeah, so our primary objective is um, getting to the bottom of what training should look like on this completely different approach to diet, right? So, Danny, obviously, you're a master keto expert. Uh, I think, you know, certainly one of the best experts in the world. I get to interview everybody, and you're certainly um, one of the best one of the best resources I've ever come across, and obviously the most jack guy in keto, for sure, the best <laughs> physique. And that's not that's not just because you're here. That's, that's a reality, man. And um, so you're training really hard, doing things, a lot of things right, and people need to learn how to adjust their training on a ketogenic diet because there's certainly some considerations. And Jordan's looking at ways how you can push really, really hard and not have to make massive manipulations to your training. So what, what do we have to do supplementally, carbohydrate-wise, to be able to push as hard as you possibly can and not have to sacrifice muscle? Because the reality is, if you're just doing a conventional ketogenic diet, it may not be the best way to add muscle, right? Yeah, and the other thing is, you know, you, you can't say when you change your fuel source completely that you can train the same. Right. You know, you, 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 knowing what we know, that would be irresponsible because we know what, what could happen. So sure. we have to be able to find a way to um, manage the training intensity, the, the volume, the rest, all those things, but then find ways to um, see how we can push the limits and um, maybe use carbohydrates when we need them. And again, I think Jordan is going to be one of those people who can speak to that. Absolutely. And we really enjoyed chatting with Jordan. I have... Uh Got a pretty great history. Like he was part of the uh, my training when I was preparing for Olympia, and uh, you know many of my contest preps. So he was a master student at the University of Tampa when I was going over there. Sometimes do my wing gates and such. He, and then him and I became friends. He'd come over for workouts. So we have a great relationship, and it's it's, it's awesome to see him having uh, created such a successful business. And, and he's been a great researcher in the keto community for a long time, and in the strength community. And he actually trains really hard, which is why I thought he'd be a great guest. For us to talk to about like what does it need to look like and this guy gets after it every day so it's really really cool benjamin what's your favorite food Me, uh, we're talking about ketogenic diet you know what that is no yes you do Not how do you that. usually eat at home how, how does danny eat i don't know yes you do what does he eat most of when we go to his house what do we eat burgers <laughs> yeah burgers what's in the burgers <laughs> last time what'd you guys eat last time that i made you What's in the burgers? Uh, brain and liver. Brain and liver. <laughs> it was liver. And for heart. Sure. Yeah. Maybe and some heart. kidneys. So what kind, of, what kind of diet do they follow? They don't know. Carnivore. Mm-hmm. You're not quite a carnivore yet, right? No. You're a carnivore who eats cookies. Yep. <laughs> carnivore and cookies. That could be a diet. You could make that into a t-shirt. Should we make a t-shirt that says carnivore and, t and cookies? That would be the best. That would be pretty ever. good, right? Yeah. Uh, would you eat, just eat carnivore if I gave you cookies? Mm, sure. Could I put like healthy stuff in the cookies? Uh, sure. What would we put in? Chocolate chips. A uh, whole bag of wheat. 
<laughs> a little bit of extra gluten. Yeah. Extra gluten. <laughs> extra gluten. We put vegetables in there. No. No. But you know, you should be carnivore because you don't like vegetables. Yeah. True. Cookie about this big, and then I'll be carnivore. So, like the big size of your arms, the size of your yeah. arms extended, yeah. and how big should the steak be? Yeah, the same maybe size. Maybe about this big. Well, how's that? That's not balance. <laughs> like that big. You want a big steak and a big cookie? Should we have that for dinner? Yeah. We want cheese on the steak. Yeah. What else would you like with it? Uh, nothing. Nothing. Steak, cookie, cheese. Ketchup. Dinner. Ketchup. Simple. Yes. It's all about the simple things. Yeah. And you know, well, we'll talk about this later. We're on our way to hockey, and Benjamin came to join us, so he, we decided we would record the intro. And I hope <laughs> you guys enjoy the show with Jordan Joy talking about ketogenic optimization for performance and muscle building. Dude, it's so great to see you doing well and see you just, just taking this keto thing and running with it because it's obviously becoming a very big thing in the world. And, um, you know, I don't know, you know, about my keto existence. Obviously, you know about Danny's a little bit. But uh, my keto life is, I'd say I'm in ketosis 90% of the time, right? But I, I really focus on um, not necessarily this attachment to dogmatically being in ketosis, but my attachment is, well, I want to feel great and I want to perform well. So, the reason we brought you on today, man, is we want to dive into this reality of like, well, how necessary is this attachment and this this label of, oh, I'm in ketosis versus, well, how often or how much can we push carbohydrate and still be in or still be reaping the benefits of ketosis? And one thing that I'm very curious about is I know this, the maybe the end objective is... Um, I want to be metabolically flexible. So I want my body to be able mm -hmm. to use carbohydrate and use yes. fat. And if I'm using fat as fuel, if I can definitively know that I'm using fat as fuel, doesn't matter if I have ketones present in my blood, or is it just a matter of like, hey, I want to be metabolically flexible. And, and who's got the best explanation of this? And hopefully you can give us a good explanation because I don't really care if I, if I have zero ketones in my blood when I measure, if I know definitively my body's using fat at rest, right? If I'm measuring my metabolic cart or my HRV and we know that my body's using fat at rest, that's where my brain goes. But I'd love to hear it from an expert. Yeah, there's there's so many topics, like that directions that we could go to explain this. Um, but Focusing, let's just focus on um, how many carbohydrates can eat as part of a ketogenic diet. And even within that, there's a number of factors. And the number one factor is going to be your activity level and the type of activity. So obviously, if you're engaging in a lot of high-intensity activity, doing a lot of wind gates, maybe, maybe doing them occluded, maybe not. Uh, but you're going to be burning off a lot of carbohydrates when you're doing high-intensity activity. And you can eat proportional to the amount that you burn off. So... In the research that I've conducted, it's, you know, even like regular people, at least 20 extra grams uh, on top of the 30 to 50 that you're going to have on a therapeutic diet. But in people that are training with very high loads, um, we've taken, when I was in Denver, uh, we would take it, we'd be eating, we'd be in ketosis, uh, wake up in the morning, go, we want to go climb a mountain. So we go climb a mountain. And when we're on the mountain, we're going to eat 100, 200 maybe 300 grams of carbohydrate and we'll come back down. Um, I'll eat a fat meal by the end of the day. I'll be back in ketosis because I'm burning off a thousand calories hiking, uh, however many miles at altitude. So uh, it's really dependent on activity. Most of the research, uh, like a hundred years ago, when the ketogenic diet started to be studied. Uh, it's being studied for therapeutic purposes 
And now it's branching out a little bit into activity, but even still, the largest part of it is still going to be for weight loss, for heart disease, diabetes, whatever it is. But most of these people are sedentary. They're not exercising. So that's where we get that 30 to 50 gram limit. And in terms of coming out or, uh, or being in ketosis, coming out and uh, doing it, you know, knowing that you're burning fat or being able to switch back and forth, um, we have to look at not just you know, are you in or out, but, you know, are you fully adapted to ketosis? Because there's a window for that as well. That's not necessarily well-defined. Um, you can get into ketosis in a matter of days, uh, really, I mean, hours if you want to fast and do exercise. Um, but are you really ketogenic? Are you really adapted to the diet? I would argue, no, not at that point. After several weeks, are you adapted to the diet? You're definitely more adapted, but I still don't think that has really occurred uh, after four weeks, a little bit more, you can say with a little more certainty, you're doing a little bit better. You're um, not your side effects of the diet, but your withdrawal symptoms from the carbohydrates have subsided and you feel better. But I think it actually takes months to fully adapt. And I base that on uh, looking at the Volick study with the ultra endurance runners where they're on it for, I think it's from like about an average of 18 months. Um, and they're doing just fine. They're eating 80 grams a day. Of course, they have a higher activity level, but um, their muscle glycogen responds. It's maintained at normal levels. So there's somewhere in that right. four weeks to six months where there's more adaptation occurring for your body to return to homeostasis. So I had a couple of questions in there. So Ryan Lowry said that the that Volick study showed after about ten or eleven months. I think is what he said. I could yeah, be wrong. It's long. It's long. Yeah, their body started like someone on a ketogenic diet was replenishing glycogen just as well as somebody who was not a ketogenic diet. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So then, even taking a step back from that, define for me, for the audience, and for myself, what it means to be in a ketogenic state. So my brain doesn't have exact clarity on this, right? So can I be eating? It's for me, is, is ketogenic dieting or a ketogenic state just the ability to consume fat and produce ketones? Or is it the necessity of the absence of insulin? Like, how do exactly would an expert like yourself define this ketogenic state? So could I theoretically be uh, effective at burning fat as fuel, producing ketones, and still having any amount, any, any sufficient amount of insulin in my blood? Can those two things coincide at the same time, or do they have to be uh, distinct? No, I, I wouldn't think that they need to be distinct, but I'm thinking of uh, ketoacidosis. So um, in that situation, both would be elevated. But in terms of just the word ketogenic, uh, it just means you're generating ketones, right? And if you think about it in a, in a chemical sense, um, we have these two facets of oxidative metabolism. We have beta oxidation, which is just clipping two carbons off of the long fat chains. Uh, or medium fat chains or just clipping off two carbons at a time, those two carbon molecules get converted into acetyl-CoA. They go through the Krebs cycle. It kicks out ATP. When we're making ketones or releasing butyrate back out into the blood, it's uh, the beta oxidation is still going like full bore. It's still operating at its normal speed or even an increased speed based on you've been following a ketogenic diet, whatever, so you're ramping up that aspect. Uh, ketones are coming out because the Krebs cycle is – uh, taking a little bit longer to catch up with the demand imposed on it by the two carbon molecules, acetyl-CoA, uh, that are becoming available and it's not able to keep up. So they exit the cell and they go up back out into the blood. And you'll notice too, and you've probably noticed this yourself and with people you've worked with, people you talk talked to, 
um, first week or two, ketones are going to be really high. After like three, four weeks, maybe five, they start to come back down. And they don't stay as elevated. Um, but they might be elevated in a fasting state. Um, but they might be more elevated uh, after you eat something. So um, it, that's just this, in a chemical okay. sense, the definition ketogenic. Okay, I understand. That makes a lot of sense. Um, we got into talking a little bit about um, this reality that after you know this extended period of time, someone in a ketogenic state becomes more adapted to replenishing their glycogen. We could see that being a performance benefit, clearly, right? Because now I have adequate glycogen. My body can fuel different types of uh, energy system training. Is there a way to look at that from a perspective of maybe being a detriment in fat loss? Like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to really understand the mechanism there. So let's say, let's say theoretically, 11 months is the time frame. I think that's what Ryan said. Um, and that's obviously going to be subjective person to person. But let's say we back it up and we see at six months, we're still not replenishing glycogen. Therefore, our body must be more dependent on fat for fuel. Does that give us a, uh, afford us a better window to be more effective at fat burning before my body replenishes glycogen? Does that make sense? Um, you're asking like if you're more adapted, is it going to then like your fat loss really rapid in the beginning? Does it slow down as you become more adapted? Well, not necessarily as you become more adapted, but as your body becomes more effective at replenishing muscle glycogen. Mm -hmm. So let's say you've been doing this diet for 11 months. Your body, we know now, is really, really good at replenishing muscle glycogen. I've only been doing it for six months. My muscle glycogen at rest is much lower than yours because my body hasn't been, uh, is, isn't adequate at replenishing that muscle glycogen yet. Mm -hmm. Does that make you better at burning fat or me better at burning fat? Or would it be the same? I think that your ability to burn fat will be roughly equal but your capacity for higher intensity exercise will be more limited because you won't have the energy substrate available to perform the exercise. And that may in turn affect total body fat loss just from a work capacity standpoint. Sure. But as far as like the limitations of the energy substrate, I, because I don't have that glycogen available, wouldn't make me more likely to burn more fat. It would just decrease my performance capacity. That's yeah. In terms, strictly in terms of, actual fat oxidation based on like a metabolic heart gas exchange. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. I, I have a question. Um, my, what I've been thinking a lot about lately, cause you know, back when you start a ketogenic diet, you're, you're gung ho and you're, you're really into it and you know, you're limiting your carbs, but as you start to learn more, you try to figure out ways to enhance your performance. And people talk about targeted keto and cyclical keto, and there's not much research on either but I would lean towards targeted because it just makes a ton of sense because you're literally giving yourself the energy that you need to perform the work. And you're not just saying, hey, I'm going to give myself carbs for a day or two without any you know, consideration to what your activity level is. What have you found comparing the two? Do you find one to be more effective than the other? And yeah, what, what can you say about that? Uh, I can say I've studied cyclical and that's in press. Um, it's in review, actually. So uh, that'll be coming out. And I can tell you what we found. And um, pretty much it's probably what you think. Your performance is a little bit better. Uh, body composition improvement still basically the same comparing like a targeted keto diet to a, a regular ketogenic diet. So providing the carbohydrate gives you a little bit of a performance edge. Uh, I personally do both and I do them both simultaneously. Um, I'm not doing a ketogenic diet for fat loss. I'm just doing it because that's the way that I like to eat. That's the way that I feel best. 
Um, but I'm not interested in sacrificing muscle growth or strength at all. So, um, and that just ties back into, is it really important to be in ketosis all the time? And after you've been doing it for years and years, I think I've been doing this, uh, like almost six years now. So, um, I don't see it as a big deal for me to be out for a day or two days. Um, but tying it back, um, Targeted, yes, absolutely for performance. And if you have it, uh, if it's if you can be more liberal, I think being cyclical is fine. That's uh, cyclical. I just regard as the anabolic diet. If that book from Mauro Di Pasquale. So yeah. you would so you would call it a, a a one day carb up or a one meal carb up versus like a two day carb up. What would what would be the ideal cyclical ketogenic approach? Is it is it a, is it a one meal? Is it a day? Is it two days? What's worked best for me is uh, just one meal. Uh, and that'll be the, on a the on a rest day, the day before. I, it just happens to work out for me that I do it over the weekend, and it's the day before a large volume training day. How big is a meal? Uh, it's usually three or four rolls of sushi. So what's whatever that, that ends up being, I don't track grams. it very closely. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I mean, I I think you can go up. I mean, it can be ballpark, um, maybe like 120 grams. Um, yeah, body weight in that sitting, yeah. uh, plus the, you know, whatever you would get from the rest of your meals. Interesting. How much are you doing, uh, in the targeted? So you're doing before, during, or after which one, uh, the workout, uh, how much are you doing then? Uh, I do it before and it varies. So, uh, it's, I'll start at 20 grams. If I'm going to do, um, more than normal, I might go up to 40 or 60. Uh, if I'm going to do like for, for some reason I'm doing like an arms workout, I might cut it down to 10 or something. <laughs> Why would you do something silly like that? So the reason I wanted to have you on, man, really like, obviously you're being a keto expert, but you're actually one of the few guys who actually gets after it in the gym, right? I know you're, you're crushing it every day. I know you're doing the heavy deadlifts, the heavy squats and the heavy compounds on a consistent basis. I watch you do it on social. Uh, and obviously, you know, you and I have that history of, of, I know that you actually get in there and focus on what you're doing. So I was very curious to hear how you're approaching this stuff. Cause Danny and I, I think we've told you are putting together a ketogenic muscle building program um, to help guys with stuff like this. Cause we want people like you who are like, listen, I'm not even trying to lose fat. You know, maybe I'm trying to maintain it, but at very least I want to learn how to build muscle while still optimizing this ketogenic state and all these things that we see that are benefits from a ketogenic state. So what are the benefits you see from being in a ketogenic state on a day-to-day -day basis for the listeners who maybe haven't experienced this before? Well, for me personally, it's just the food choices. I was, when I was, uh, even when I was growing up, I talk about this sometimes when I start telling these stories, like growing up, I look at the food guide pyramid and I'm like, this is complete BS. Why would we have 11 servings of bread when only three servings of protein? Uh, I liked eating butter plain. I liked eating mayonnaise plain. I liked stealing my mom's little creamers for coffee and drinking those plain. So I was really like built to do this. I just think it's in my genes somewhere. Um, He's so, got the keto gene. Yes. Yeah, so I just like, maybe you can discover that. This is the way it's easiest for me to be compliant with a diet. Um, right. I never liked being low fat and the food never tasted good. It was always kind of miserable to eat that way. Uh, but in terms of benefits, I just, it's almost hard to describe. I just feel better. Everything's a little bit more fluid. Um, when I'm hungry, it's not, uh, 
like debilitating. It's just like, oh, I should probably eat soon. It's like more of a reminder than like a some kind of compulsionary, like I need to act on this. Sure. And now, and now how, about for, how about for someone who doesn't feel that way? What if someone actually like craves carbohydrates? If they have substantial carb cravings, like I don't really like eating a lot of fat and a lot of meat. Would you suggest like, hey, a ketogenic diet just isn't for you? Or is it something where we should go through, you know, a four, an eight, a 12 week adaptation phase and actually see then the benefits that you can experience of not being hungry and the cognitive benefits and this amazing thing of like, if I decide to go 12 hours without eating, I actually still feel pretty damn good, if not better. Yeah, for somebody, so if somebody's, uh, if that's upfront, if they've never done a keto diet before, I would try to get them going. I think everybody should do it at least periodically. Um, this ties way back into like history evolution. I think uh, during our evolutionary history, we were at least ketogenic at, during some parts of the year sure. when carbohydrate yeah. dense foods would not be available, just like winter. Um, so I think we were just forced to, into that or even starvation. But um, I think all the data based around uh, that you see on the health benefits of ketogenic diets uh, alludes to that just for our survival and everything. Uh, but for somebody that's just starting out, I would be very curious to see how they respond to a ketogenic diet. And like I said, I think everybody should at least be on once at least sometimes or try it at least once to see how it goes uh, for them. And maybe after 12 weeks, their cravings for carbohydrate go away because they've broken that addiction where they're not physically dependent on carbohydrate feeding anymore. So they don't have those same cravings. Like it, it becomes a lot easier to say no. Two of the things that I'm thinking about um, is number one, trying to, trying to standardize, like for instance, like a cyclical keto approach, trying to standardize it for like different people, like because 120 carbs, it doesn't seem like a lot for someone your size. You said you're like 220. Uh, you're right around my size. Um, so it's, you would say that... Let me, it's one, oh, that's one, just in one meal. 120 for that meal plus my daily, which is going to be around 80, just on like a normal so day. Right around 200. So almost pretty much close to body weight. If you're an active person, you got a good amount of muscle, you're not metabolically broken close to body weight for one of those uh, carb ups. And how do you feel after? Because I've noticed I don't feel with those days, I don't feel like my brain is foggy or anything like that. No, uh, I've noticed. So like when I do when I say I have like sushi, I do that deliberately. I think that uh, that one has like a cleaner source. Uh, it doesn't bother me. But if I have like ice cream or something desserty or uh, something that's unnatural in some way, I do notice it the next day. I'll, my symptoms are usually headaches, so I usually get a headache the day after. So you're saying you're saying like the rice would be a good source. What about things like different sources? Because you have things like sweet potatoes, you have things like fruit or honey. Mm. Um, I think all those would be any fine choices. Differences there. Um, but when faced with the decision between fruit and potatoes or sushi, I'm going for the sushi. <laughs> and no detriment in, in fructose. In fructose. Uh, sorry. No detriment in eating fructose in what you've experienced? Um, for, personally, I wouldn't say I notice anything. Um, chemically and theoretically, I can make the argument against fructose. Um, as far as just having it um, on rare occasion, like once a week or one meal a week, I wouldn't think that it's going to be that big of a deal. And especially if this is like you're going to have a banana before you go train, um, Let's say you're, because you're 
thinking about on a cellular level, you have about 80% glucose transporters, 20% fructose transporters along the cell membrane and the, the digestive tract. So having a little bit of fructose can help fuel exercise and fear endurance athlete that can actually be beneficial because you're able to have greater uptake of carbohydrate and better uh, supply uh, energy to meet the demands of your sport. I didn't know that. Very interesting. That is interesting. And then the other thing about fructose is you'd get, you, you wouldn't have that insulin response, which could be detrimental during the training. Obviously, after the training would be good, but during the training, you don't want your insulin up. So that's why I'm thinking about things like dried fruit, um, banana would be the best for like the targeted approach. Yeah, even um, just uh, in general, like non-keto uh, carbohydrate fueling strategies, um, a lot of the recommendations are you know, like oatmeal or something like an hour, hour and a half, two hours before like a starchy meal. And then as you're getting closer to that event, you have something like a fruit or a honey to provide some quick sources. Makes sense. Very interesting. So one of the things that comes up for me often, and nobody's been able to give me a really good answer on this, is what are the negative long-term implications of ketogenic dieting? So is there anything you've seen that like you've been doing it for six years? You know, I'm, I'm guessing you do blood work somewhat often, maybe. Um, have you seen any negative effects to your blood work? Is it vitamin deficiency? Is it thyroid deficiency? Or, you know, what are the, the like, I'm, I'm guessing at some point something's coming up here around like, hey, I've noticed this happen in a ketogenic diet, or I've noticed this happen with certain ethnicities, or I've noticed this happen, um, you know, if I do keto for too long without doing refeeds. Have you, have you noticed anything like that? Uh, if, uh, yes. So the one thing, the last thing you mentioned, doing ketogenic too long without refeeds, when you do end up refeeding or just eating carbohydrate just by chance, um, it does seem to have a more negative effect. Like you'll be yeah. uh, like, just like lazier, like it just weighs you down. Like you don't like, and I think too, uh, even like the next day, it almost feels like the like glucose is still elevated in the blood. Like it doesn't clear. Almost like a, if you don't use oh, yeah. it, you lose it thing. Um, yeah. But you experienced that. Right? I Perfect. did. I, I experienced the same thing. Sorry to interrupt you, man, but I experienced the same thing. And when I first started adding carbs back in, my blood sugar was all over the place. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like, and, 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 you know, they call that physiological insulin resistance. But I, I like Benjamin Bickman's term. That's uh, carbohydrate intolerance, mm -hmm. because it's really just your body is so used to it's so fat adapted that it kind of forgets what to do with the carbs. And then that's what I, my guess was after like about a week of that, my blood sugar came right back down and it, it was actually lower. Mm -hmm. um, it was consistently lower with three days a week at 150 carbs a day. Right. Yeah, sounds about right. Have you seen any body composition improvements from adding back in those higher carb days? Because so what I see, you know, anecdotally with myself, with my clients, if I go three weeks or something without any carbs and then I add in those refeed days, when I feel like, you know, example being I've got some clients who I'll put them on a, a you know, therapeutic ketosis diet for three weeks, four weeks and see what happens. Most people are getting fat adapted. Most people are losing fat. Um, when fat stalls, I'll add in a carbohydrate refeed day or maybe one and a half. Some, like it's not a massive amount. Like you say, it's certainly going to be under 150 grams. Um, and notice a significant kick in fat loss. I'm wondering if you experienced that. Yeah, and that's, uh, I mean, that's kind of, uh, I don't want to say common, but even for carbohydrate-based diets, carbohydrate-based preps, they usually throw in one or two days. You guys would be more uh, of an expert in that field than I would, but that that's, uh, plays into the leptin and ghrelin responses and keeping, um, 
keeping that path, those pathways activated in order to facilitate sure. long-term fat loss. Well, that's really what I'm getting at to, to look at getting you to go down that road with this negative implication of ketogenic dieting. Like who's studying the leptin ghrelin response and how do we optimize that? You know, obviously there's some considerations like you may not want that to be, uh, you know, highly, you know, may, may not want to have high amounts of ghrelin because of hunger. But then we know if ghrelin's maybe associated with growth hormone, maybe that's associated with, with fat loss. So like, how do we optimize the leptin ghrelin uh, ratios? I think, while still being on a ketogenic diet. I think having, even for regular people, I mean, and there was Sean Wells told me this a long time ago when I first started, he said, you know, every week or two weeks, you should have a carbohydrate meal or a carbohydrate-based day to jumpstart those processes. Um, and I don't know who's studying it, and I couldn't tell you anything uh, that's hard science-based, but I can tell you based on how I feel and how uh, I've observed other people respond, that spicing those in usually once a week, maybe once every two weeks is beneficial, uh, not just for fat loss, but also if you're doing it as a, a targeted approach, it can help you with increasing your training volume and as a function of that, increasing muscle growth too. Uh, one of the things I'm thinking about is, you know, the traditional calorie shifting diets that they're giving, they're, they're aiming to give you that little leptin reset, you know, where you add those carbs in and then you reset your leptin. Um, with a ketogenic approach, and we talked about this the other day in passing, like how it, if you were to just cycle calories up and add protein and, car and fat, you wouldn't really get that same effect. Uh, with someone who's been doing a ketogenic diet for a long time, especially someone who's really, really lean, they start to get that leptin deficiency. And now they're just really never, they're never hungry, you know? And so it would seem like for someone like that, you would have to do a carb up so that you can get the calories that you need to continue trying to build muscle. Have you looked at any of that with like calorie shifting and trying to do it with carbs versus fat and how, what that would do hormonally? Uh, we haven't uh, looked at anything, so I can't tell you in terms of hormone response. Uh, I would say, though, just on the, the topic of calorie cycling or calorie shifting, that I think that that's still an important part of long-term weight loss, regardless of diet type, ketogenic or yeah. otherwise. Yeah, a lot of people, they'll, they'll, just, they'll just continue to taper the calories down. And all this research, Tony Montgomery has been looking into this recently. All the research that you've seen in the last couple of years shows like long-term success is is largely depending dependent on those those calorie shifting where you do maybe like I'm doing with some of my clients eleven days um, normal deficit type of days and then three days of of maintenance calories and they're doing fantastic. But I don't know if it's if it's I don't know what the mechanism of it is. I just know it's working. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds pretty much spot on with what the data says. So pretty much after, if you're in a deficit for about two weeks, uh, your metabolic rate slows down. And then in this specific study I'm thinking of, that you go up for a week and then your metabolic rate will return. It'll, it'll come back up and then you can go back to a deficit. And that's really how you maintain weight loss over a long term. Jordan, tell me about your sleep on a ketogenic diet. So I've had some people who express um, concern or um, asking a lot of questions about the lack of carbohydrate in their diet in some way negatively impacting serotonin and GABA and potentially negatively impacting sleep? Uh, no complaints that I've heard from uh, probably hundreds of participants uh, or any of the people that I've worked with in terms of sleep. 
So even if people are depriving themselves of carbohydrates for a long time, you have, have, you, have anybody quantified that? Like any actual quantification r- around negatively impacting deep versus REM sleep? Uh, any studies you know of? No studies I know of for that one, no. Maybe something we need to look at. Because I think that's a real thing, right? It's especially someone who's living a highly sympathetic life. Um, the body becomes dependent, at least my belief is, the body becomes dependent on using carbohydrate insulin to modulate insulin, right? Uh, to modulate cortisol. So... Uh, I'm very curious how, if you know mechanistically, how the body starts to adapt its, um, you know, modulation of cortisol on a ketogenic diet, right? So if if I'm in, in our world being highly sympathetic and I'm not giving my body carbohydrates, have we looked at any quantification around the autonomic nervous system or around like what the body starts to do to adjust to these elevated, these chronically elevated cortisol levels? Um, we did look at cortisol, um, in the study that I was talking about earlier. So we, they were on a ketogenic diet just for nine weeks. Um, so we really like 10 weeks if you factor in the testing weeks. Um, so you get the, the that's a 10 week gap between, you know, pre and post testing for cortisol. Um, and the carbohydrate group, it, this was not, uh, significantly different, but the carbohydrate group actually had a greater increase in cortisol over that time than did the ketogenic group. So, I, I don't think that there's going to be a big, at least based on that data, uh, a big increase in cortisol based on the diet itself. What was the population? Uh, these are college-aged, recreationally active males and females. Yeah, I mean, it makes, makes sense. They're healthy, they're young, they're vibrant. Like, my concern is the 35-plus, you know, uh, A-type, <laughs> overstressed person who has created some psychological adaptation to, hey, I need carbohydrates to actually calm down my sympathetic nervous system to actually go to sleep or to actually, you know, other than short of using alcohol, like a lot of people do, um, like, what do we actually do to modulate some cortisol there? And, and I'm curious if anyone's looked at how ketones or being a ketogenic state in any way implicates, um, you know, adjusting cortisol in any direction. No, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know of any research that's looked at it specifically for uh, ketogenic diet or ketone supplementation, anything like that. Um, I would suspect that some of it's going to still be relevant to total energy levels as well. Uh, not just, uh, just because you're depleted of carbohydrate doesn't mean you're low on energy. So it may not be the same stress response that you might experience with like the typical, oh, I'm on a low carb diet. When people say that they're usually on a low calorie, low carb diet as well and low fat. Um, super interesting, man. Where are you going right now with your research? So if, you know, you've just been looking at targeted keto, you're coming out with some new supplements, what's the greatest area of interest for you in, uh, you know, this keto space? Like what's the next hot topic on your mind? Uh, for me, it's still the threshold and establishing that threshold, uh, for carbohydrate. That's the parameters of it, I think, need to be defined and not just, uh, you know, how much protein can I eat, how much carbohydrate, how much fat. And uh, although that is very important, but also looking at the adaptation as a whole, what is the actual window? Is it is it two weeks? Is it four weeks? I think it's much longer. And, and you know, when does that actually occur? So how, how, like, how should we move forward making recommendations for clients and people that want to do this type of diet, live this type of lifestyle long term? 
Well, one question that adds to that, or I'd like for you to, to look at, or that you could respond to, is how much to work out. Like, how much volume? Are you adjusting your volume? Are you adjusting your frequency in any way to adapt to being in a, in a fat-adapted state? Or are you still training with high amounts of volume and high amounts of density? Like, how do you adapt your training? Uh, <laughs> or how do you recommend people adapt it? Well, if you're uh, trying to adapt, uh, at least based on like Ryan's data, um, they've looked at like low intensity versus high intensity exercise and getting that high intensity into deplete glucose faster. I hope you adapt faster. Uh, but once you're adapted, I, I mean, for me personally, uh, training uh, usually power lifters, sometimes power builder style. Um, and I'm doing pretty much every other day. It's like legs, uh, upper body, legs, upper body, legs, upper body, day off. Uh, and I've been doing that for at least all this year, um, except for you're training like five days a week and up, upper lower split, uh, six days, um, going upper lower back, you know, back to back changing, uh, one day is a speed day. And then I got two heavy, uh, we have one heavy deadlift, one heavy squat and, uh, one heavy bench. And then, uh, the hypertrophy days where I'm doing volume. So super low volume then, but uh, like long rest periods. Yeah. And then they'll have the one day each uh, for hypertrophy, shorter rests, a lot more volume. Do you adjust your calories on those days? Like put up your intra-workout carbs a little bit or your pre-workout carbs? Yes. So the hypertrophy days that I, are the days that I bump up the carbs. And your primary focus is strength or hypertrophy or both? Primary focus, strength, uh, secondary focus, close second hypertrophy. Interesting, because I think a lot of our followers, our, our demographic will be in the same boat as you, right? Like, hey man, I want to get big, but I also want to be strong. So it's important that we give them the kind of skill set and to be able to adjust their diet on the fly. So we're obviously going to be doing a lot to help these people uh, educate themselves on these tactics and strategies, which is why we really want to have this conversation. But, um, you know, Danny and I obviously have very different approaches to training or he's, we're doing a lot of things differently now. We've both gone through a, a hypertrophy phase. We've bon both gone through some strength phases and seeing how we adapt. And we, we're pushing the volume pretty high. The density was pretty low, but the vo volume was pretty high. And as soon as we added in those carbohydrates, for me, it was like two to th probably twice a week where I would do the cyclical keto approach, like, you know, Wednesdays and Saturdays or Wednesdays and Sundays kind of thing. Uh, knowing we were training five days a week, uh, I felt amazing. My performance would never drop. My mental clarity was high. When I didn't do those adaptations or when I didn't do those adjustments, uh, we both felt, or I felt like really really sluggish and danny said about the same thing yeah i didn't i didn't do them nearly as much as he did them and so i would hit a wall sometimes but when i did do them i felt the same as you i felt i felt really, really you were doing good. less than me right yeah yeah how yeah, much were you doing like 50 yeah <laughs> but nowadays if i were to do it like i, I want to do a carb up tomorrow just to just to see how it feels and and then hit like something like a like a high volume upper day or something um and just to see how it feels, you know, because I, I, I just go so long without them. And I have certain things that I'm trying to see, like my HRV is always decent or high. My, my ketones, blood sugar, low. So these are two good indicators that I'm not stressed, but my deep sleep is bad. My REM is bad. So uh, I haven't done enough research or just personal experimentation to see if I were to add a day or two a week of where I really do a good carb up, like, you know, 200 carbs or something, what that would do for my deep and REM sleep. Because I personally don't feel bad, but I'm also concerned that over the long term, 
with my REM and my deep sleep being low, that's not a good thing, you know? So I don't know mm. if, I don't know if anybody's looked at this, you know, effects on REM, effects on deep sleep. It might be as simple as, you know, where there's other areas where we need to create a new baseline, for instance, like RDAs, you know, RDAs, we, I don't eat fruit or anything. I don't eat anything and I, and I don't technically get vitamin C, but I'm not getting scurvy, you know? So is there a new baseline that we have to look at, or is there something that we're missing that would, because of a ketogenic diet, throw off REM sleep and deep sleep numbers? Yes. Uh, real quick on the vitamin C thing, you eating vegetables? Or you no, I, I personally, like most, I'm just like eating nose to tail carnivore okay. most of the time. Okay. So what about uh, your carb ups? What are you doing then? I, I haven't done any in a long time. So, I, okay. I, you know, if I do them, <clears throat> I think tomorrow's going to be a sushi day, <laughs> you know, lower fat, some high carbs. Um, but I don't, I haven't done them often enough to, to have, you know, a predictable outcome that I can say, this is what happens. Okay. So, um, uh, what they just because uh, people it comes up all the time these micronutrient concerns. <clears throat> um, we have the digestive system of a carnivore. If you look at our like our digestive system, you look at a big cat or another obligate carnivore. We have almost the identical an identical digestive system. If you look at uh, the digestive system of an obligate herbivore, whether they're ruminants or whether they're like a gorilla, just a really long they have these super super long large intestines where they're fermenting all these carbohydrates. Um, so we're definitely like engineered to be uh, animal-based based on our machinery that's within our bodies. Uh, absolutely. So where uh, people can be carnivore, I think they're absolutely fine, especially if you're eating uh, organ meats and everything that you're getting, you know, definitely getting uh, good quality nutrients uh, via those mechanisms. But even uh, like big cats and these obligate carnivores, they still are observed to eat uh, plant matter in between their kills. So the you'll you know, hunters that find these uh, these animals they'll find uh, grasses and whatever in their in their intestines in their stomachs. So um, even for and this isn't like any kind of indictment or anything like I'm not trying to knock on carnivore or anything like that. I just think like uh, and this also plays way back into what I mentioned earlier, part of our evolutionary history. Like we were in between uh, being able to obtain game or insects or whatever it happened to be like we're looking at people's like what's found in uh, ancient remains in their teeth and based on bone markings and all these other things like we see like uh, these guys are like when they're starving they're like they'll eat whatever it's grass will start to taste good they'll munch on tree bark in between getting like good meals in so there's uh, still a component of uh, of all that within our system so Having some plant matter is, uh, I still think, is a good idea. Um, but yeah, especially things that you can that you can tolerate that you know you can tolerate. Right. So um, that's all. It's vegetables, whatever it happens. For me, to be. it's for me, it's 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 not so much that I'm being dogmatic as I'm just a creature of habit. Like mm -hmm. you know, and I'm I'm uh, like I was mindful of the fact last year that I've I, it's been three years where I've eaten two meals a day. And I said, well, maybe, maybe this is bad. Maybe this is not a good thing. Maybe, maybe I'd do better if I eat more frequently. So I tried three meals a day for like 
a month and there was no difference. Mm. So, you know, the same thing goes for the way I eat. You know, I kind of wake up every morning. I eat kind of the same thing. Like I have a checklist of things like that. I get, you know, some sort of fish roe or something Did I get some organ meat that day Did I eat, you know, nose to tail Did I have egg yolks, all those things. And then other than that, I don't quite put any more thought into it. But I think like what you're saying if we want to continue to not train the same way all the time and actually be able to do different things with our training, we should also um, have carb ups and things like that. The question is how, and that's what we're talking about today. Right. Um, I like the idea, like based on your training. So it's very similar to what we wrote in the program where we had longer rest periods. We had shorter time under tension. So for, for you, f four or five days of the week is that. And then there's those two days that you're, you know, higher volume, shorter rest periods where, you know, fat would not be able to generate the energy fast enough mm -hmm. to keep up and you'd hit a wall. Those are the days where you're increasing the carbs. It just makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Even uh, I mean, I still have carbohydrates on the strength days too. And I do feel a lot better. I really do feel like it's helped my performance and what I'm, I'm using the, the product that I'll be coming out with, which is like carbohydrate and ketones together. Um, so it's, there's no avenue that's like left unsupplied. Uh, I do want to answer your question about the serotonin and just real quick, the having the carb ups and everything is like, if you feel like your sleep is being impacted, if you're you know measuring it with the aura ring or what trap or whatever you're doing, um, having carbohydrate absolutely makes sense to get a serotonin response and enhance the quality of your sleep. So. And once a week or once every two weeks is, I mean, or just kind of play with it. I would say do it as needed, um, honestly, because I'm not, uh, if your activity is there, I think you can work in some evening carbohydrate to fit within your total macros for the day and still maintain ketosis. And the, even if you're kind of on the border of that, you're about to fast for eight hours and then you're going to have high cortisol in the morning. You're going to be burning fat by the time you wake up. So. Sure. What's your typical day look like as far as food? Like, are you, you tracking macros? Are you just making sure you hit certain foods? And if so, what are your primary sources of fat and protein? Well, it varies week to week. So uh, in terms of diets for, for everybody, I say to uh, vary uh, between uh, within day and between weeks. So I eat the same food every day uh, for a week, and then I change it up, and I eat the same thing every day for the next week, and it just resets uh, over the weekend. Uh, so this week, it's chicken and kale is one meal. I have a quiche for breakfast with pork in it. So eggs, almond flour, um, some peppers, onions, and pork. Um, I have salmon and uh, mashed cauliflower. And then uh, we have a, a, it's a sausage loaf with uh, avocado. Three meals a day. We have four solid meals, and then I do... Uh, either a whey protein shake or a beef protein shake after I train. Any awareness behind eating nose to tail? Are you including organ meats and collagen and all these other uh, kind of necessities of this high um, muscle meat diet? Uh, that I don't do that often. Um, when I was in South Dakota for six months, I don't know if I told you <laughs> before I moved here, but uh, we had a lot uh, better access to uh, different meats just from people out there. Just, they're just hunting all the time. So, uh, it's just friends. Are like, I mean, you can't yeah, just go a, out and hunt a deer a in Jersey. Yeah, we can get it. Uh, it's just not as, it's not like people are coming to the door and handing it to you. Um, but have at, at times been conscious of 
getting uh, liver, kidneys, or heart worked into the diet. And no uh, conscious addition of collagen or glycine into your diet? I'm, sh- I'm very confident that my glycine is pretty high, but, um, from, but not, from what? not just from eating a lot of protein in general. Um, so I don't, I'm not sure what you're referencing in terms of if you have like a threshold or a uh, target in mind. Uh, no, I, so there's just been some, some things pointed out to me that show that people who are eating diets high in animal or in animal muscle meat tend to be um, deficient in glycine and have an excess of methionine. Okay. Um, so I was curious if you were balancing that out in any way. I, I'm not thinking about doing that. Um, I think that uh, the, the excess of methionine being a concern for longevity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's more the, di- the yes, and also the deficit of glycine being concerned for yes. tissue health mm-hmm. and glutathione production. Yeah. So the glycine um, for glutathione, as well as uh, activating sirtuins, these uh, anti-aging proteins, uh, that you might hear about. I think that it's it's certainly got a role in that. Um, if I'm ever feeling under the weather, glycine is one of the things I add to a little concoction of colostrum and other things. Um, so I I, I I like glycine. I think it's important. Um, collagen. I'm I'm I mean I'm, I'm not tracking it, but I'm if I were to guess, uh, just uh, getting enough meat in with uh, some of those less than uh, tender parts, you're getting some collagen. But uh, I ab- absolutely support the uh, did you uh, happen to check yeah. out uh, Jen's research she sent the other day where they were doing collagen injections? Um, into, I did see that. I thought that I was did see that. really interesting. <laughs> Super interesting, so, uh, yes. I'm much uh, more so, interested in collagen now than I was before I read that email. Yeah. You want to talk about it? You want to tell the listeners about what that was? Uh, sure. Um, I mean, just in a nutshell, she was um, uh, Jen Petrosino, a girl that uh, we communicate with. She's at Ohio State University. Um, great researcher. Uh, she was uh, testing a hypothesis um, regarding collagen. So she was injecting collagen or uh, a control into uh, muscle bellies of rats and just looking at hypertrophy. And the ones that were injected with the collagen were growing at a faster rate. Um, and it was not, um, they weren't just synthesizing more uh, connective tissues. They were actually synthesizing functional muscle proteins, contractile proteins. So, um, and that maybe that's due to the glycine um, or the proline, hydroxyprolines. Um, but it's just really interesting observations. Have you started injecting collagen yet? I've thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to ask one last question coming from me, man. Is, is the biggest, what are the biggest mistakes people are making on a ketogenic diet? And the, the offshoot of that is what are the biggest mistakes people are making on a ketogenic diet who want to build muscle? So those are two separate questions, but one and the same. Okay. So the first one uh, I'll regard as a, a sedentary or relatively sedentary person that's just uh, approaching the improvement in their lifestyle through diet only. And... Uh, I'm going to pick on the guys a little bit because they're more notorious for this, but they're focusing on uh, just eating the things that they like on a ketogenic diet and not really making it sustainable, not incorporating a lot of variety of foods, especially like uh, eating more vegetables. And this is something that I think everybody goes through something that I went through when I started is I wasn't really focusing on that aspect of it. Um, And then there's parts of, you know, getting too much protein or too little protein. Um, and that'll play into the, the active person side, but incorporating, I always say, uh, vegetables are a vehicle for fat because usually, uh, people are having a hard time getting their fat up and people are having a, a hard time wanting to eat vegetables. So if you soak broccoli in butter, 
it's much more delicious and a lot easier to eat. And then you also get your fat up too. Um, and the second part of the question, um, if I if I may, I'm going to plug the the ebook I wrote for Archetype. If I can do that, so okay. of course, man. All right. So uh, the brand I'm launching, ArchetypeSubs.com. It's not live yet, but I do have the ebook up there. If you go, you punch in your email. Uh, we'll send you a link so you can download the ebook. It's called The New Rules of Keto. It's specifically targeted for people who are active and living a ketogenic lifestyle. Um, so, and I, I'll give you a, a little bit of a sneak peek. Um, one of it's carbohydrate, not eating enough carbohydrate. I think you need to eat enough to fuel activity. Our friend Eric says uh, carbohydrates are activity dependent. And I think that that is true for a ketogenic diet as well. And I also think that people who are active and wanting to build muscle or just be good at whatever their sport is also need to be, uh, need to continue dosing protein as a function of their body weight on a grams per kilogram body weight basis. I don't think that that changes just because one goes ketogenic. If How anything, I think it might be a little bit higher. Oh, for, um, for somebody who is uh, you know, looking for muscle gain, I would still say keep it around that 2.2 grams per kilogram. Um, at least so to start gram, off. So one gram per pound of body yeah, weight. Yeah, one gram per pound. Um, there's a lot of data that would support even a higher intake of protein uh, for maximal rates. Uh, muscle protein says maximal rates of muscle gain, and that's going to be closer to 4.4, 4 to 4.4. 4. Even on a ketogenic diet? And I don't know that you maintain ketosis quite that high. Um but that's one of the areas of future research that I'd be interested in looking at. So, you know, we talked about uh, where I'm exploring the carbohydrate threshold. Yeah. Um, I wonder if like, so let's say you can eat an extra 50 grams of carbs a day. Uh, protein has a little bit less of an impact on a negative impact on your uh, ketotic state. So maybe you can eat 75 grams of protein instead of the 50 grams of carbs. What's better for your personal goals, your personal adaptation? Should you eat the 75 grams of protein or the 50 grams of carbohydrates, which is going to actually improve your performance better. Uh, and that's one of the areas that we uh, need to continue testing and looking at. One more thing with protein, and I was, I was just thinking about this, the protein um, subject. Totally lost my train of thought. When you come back to Tampa, man, come back for a workout. I'm ready to do some deadlifts. Now that your hamstring's strong, I can keep up. <laughs> hey, I'm ready to go whenever you want. Always happy to are you come be down. staying in New York for a while. Or are you you got Are you planning on moving? No, I'm planning on sticking around. Um, I moved around like I think I've been in like six different states since uh, I left New York the first time. Yeah. So, it's, uh, yeah, ten years, six different states. Not so bad, man. You can do better <laughs> than that. I mean, you haven't even explored the west side of the country yet, man. Like, yeah, I think you're missing out. I know. I thought I might continue going west. It was either going to California or coming back to New York, and I ended up coming back to New York. <laughs> Very cool, man. Well, dude, we're going to promote your new rules of keto book um, because you're awesome and you're doing great stuff, and, and we're big supporters of you. And thank you for joining us on the conversation today. Um, and you know, tell the listeners where they can get a hold of you or find more from you. Well, if you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Instagram at Jordan M. Joy. J-O-R-D-A-N-M-J-O-Y. Right. Or you can find him at occludedwingates.com. <laughs> yes. <laughs> also on the domain for occluded wingates. <laughs> it's just a lot of screaming and legs moving way too fast in little circles. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I appreciate your time, dude. So great to chat, catch up with you again. And, and thank you very much for joining yeah, us. Yeah, absolutely. Love being on. Thanks for having me.
Everybody, that's a wrap. Thank you very much for tuning into the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm sitting here with Danny Vega. We just wrapped up some amazing ketogenic podcasts. Do not forget to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. If you loved it, if you hated it, I want to hear from you. And always, I'm guessing you're going to love it because Danny's awesome and we're cool doing cool stuff. Leave us a five-star review. If you did enjoy it, share with at least one person that you love who you want to help live their greatest life. Have a great day. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know, and make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.